But if you look around, and uh, whether it be on the news, on social media, in your neighborhood, talking with family, we just had uh, a holiday and families gathered, you probably had conversations about things that's going on in people's lives. Um, you might have come to the conclusion that the world is not as it should be. Anybody think that's kind of the case? Look around, you go, man, that's not, not how it should be, right? And now, there's, there's a truth that I want us to grab a hold of as we, as we jump into this conversation with the assumption that the world is not as it should be. And the, the, the foundation for this, the assumption for that, is that <coughs> the world didn't get this way by accident. Um, the story in Genesis tells us God made a, a creation, all the different ways, all the different things he did, and he said it was good. He said it was really good. Uh, and we look around, and there's some good things, but we, we see some things that are, are not good, and they're not as God made them. And it didn't just happen by accident. The world is the way that it is because over the years, people have made it this way. The, um, as we look at people that experience conflict or broken relationships or suffering or uh, poverty or hunger or um, just loneliness, um, busyness, um, wrestling with financial decisions, whatever it may be that you identify and says this isn't as it should be, there are forces, there are people that have shaped things this way. Um, the, the Old Testament tells us that that, that responsibility falls on kings. Right? So the Old Testament, especially the prophets, you have these stories of, of bad kings. And, and there's this one king in the Old Testament that gets... Uh, he's not the only bad king, but everything kind of gets summarized in his behavior. Um, you've probably heard of King Ahab, or maybe if you haven't heard of him, you probably have heard of his wife Jezebel. Now, they are symbolic of bad kings in Israel. So th there was other ones, obviously, that did things poorly. There was a whole bunch of kings in the history of Israel and Judah that were not faithful to God, but Ahab and with Jezebel kind of sums it all up. They're the worst of the worst. Um, in his, his reign, he's, he's blamed, he's responsible for setting up places to worship idols to pagan gods. During his time, he's blamed by the prophets, by the writers of, of uh, the Old Testament kings and chronicles. He's, he's blamed for famine in the land for drought, for violence, war, conflict. Because he's a bad king, these things happen. That's the way that the Old Testament explains it, right? So it wasn't, we, we as modern, uh, scientifically-minded people, post-enlightenment people, we know that like drought comes when weather patterns form in a particular way. Um, war happens because of political maneuvering between countries, uh, but in the Old Testament, they, they blame these things on the king. And ultimately, it was the king's responsibility uh, to lead their people to life. And so here you have Ahab making all these treaties with, with other nations and leading to idol worship as a compromise because that's how he felt like he would secure power, he would maintain power, he'd be able to, to continue his rule by all these different maneuverings, right? And so, 
they have this story of King Ahab as a, as a bad king, but it summarizes, it, it captures this idea that Israel had been led by a bunch of bad kings over time, and, and that the, the plight, their, their, their fate had been shaped because they've had bad kings. And so that's kind of the foundation. As we, as, as we look around the world and say things are not as they should be, we need to look at it through the Old Testament eyes and say, well, it's not as it should be because the people who have had the ability to shape the world have made it this way. So just keep that in mind as we turn to our text this morning, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. Don't forget the King Ahab, don't forget the bad kings as we read through this though, right? It's going to be critically important that you remember the context is, is um, years and years and years of following kings that led people away from God. Okay? So then Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10 will be on the screen or um, there's Bibles under the chairs or your devices, however you want to follow along. It says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but the righteous he will judge, the, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his resting place will be glorious. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word this morning. Um, as I say often, we're not just grateful for the words on the page, although it is miraculous in, in some sense and how you've preserved your truth, your revelation over all these years, that ink on paper has found its way through human hands through some 3,000 years and into our presence this morning. And so we're grateful for that. But also we're grateful uh, for the word that became flesh and dwells amongst us. In this time of Advent, this season of waiting, we already know how the story ends. That God, you sent your son to dwell amongst us. And so we are grateful for that word, that truth that became flesh and guides us in all truth. We thank you and love you. Amen. So this section of Isaiah that we just read a moment ago, chapter 11, um, comes from the first section of Isaiah. Did you know that the book of Isaiah can be 
divided into three sections. In scholarly uh, endeavors, you may hear it first Isaiah, second Isaiah, third Isaiah, or um, they talk about Isaiah broken into those in three chapters. Even though it's one book, it's a long book, um, there's, there's three sections, chapter 1 through 39, chapters 40 through 55, and then 56 through 66 is the third one. And, and the way that they divide that up is based off of what's going on during the time. Um, there's significant differences. So even though it's one book, it's pretty obvious if you read through it as a story, pretty obvious that, that something has changed between these different sections. So this first section um, where we get our text today has Isaiah in Jerusalem prior to exile. Okay, so, so if you know your Bible, Old Testament story, you know Jerusalem um, in Judah in the south, right? And you know that at some point the Babylonians come and they conquer that and take the people out to, the, to Babylon, right? And they live in exile. This is before that happened. Um, to the north, Israel has already, um, the northern half of Israel's, Israel proper, has already encountered the Assyrian army and is not doing well. Um, Assyria has pretty much had its way with the northern half of the kingdom. And uh, here we have Isaiah in the south, kind of watching and hearing what's going on. And so he speaks a word of warning. He speaks um, in advance of what is destined to happen in the south. He sees what's happening in the north as a precursor to what's going to happen to Jerusalem. So that's kind of what's going on here. So he's, he's writing from this place of something's coming and it's not going to be great. Like that's the newspaper headlines. Okay. Um, that's kind of the context. So what do, what, do we, what do we need to know for Isaiah? What would, if he could be here today, what would he want us to know? Um, well, the first thing I think he'd want us to know is that worldly leaders using worldly power cannot bring about godly results. So he would just come right out and just say that. Like, worldly leaders using worldly power, using tools of the world, the ways of the kingdom of the world, will not get you the kingdom of heaven as a result. Um, so that's, I think, what he would want to say. So let's work, work backwards for just a second through what we read in chapter 11 a moment ago. Chapter 11, that section that we just read, ends by talking about predators and prey living together in peace. Um, kids playing in the viper's den, in the viper's pit, which seems like a really poor parenting decision. Um, but this is what it's talking about, lions and lambs and wolves and sheep all laying down together. Um, predators and prey, that dynamic, the relationship between them being eliminated and them living at peace together. Well, Isaiah, would, Isaiah didn't write to let us know about animals in the future, right? This isn't some sort of, well, when, you know, sometime down the road, lions won't eat meat. Like, that's not what he's writing about. So there's obviously some sort of symbolic thing going on here, right? We all with me there that Isaiah wasn't writing really about the animals? There's, there's a, a meaning underneath this. Um, and so Isaiah is using this language of predator and prey to point out the reality of the way things are today, right? So right now, Lions and lambs don't hang out together. If you go to the zoo, you won't see them in the same pen. Uh, at least not for long, right? 
Um, well, why is that? Well, Isaiah will say to us, the reason why the lion and the, the lamb aren't hanging out together, the reason why you don't put your kids in the snake pit is because of poor kings, because of bad kings, because we've lacked a righteous king. This is Isaiah's math this is, that's going on here. Okay? So, so the reality is today that lions and sheep don't hang out together. You don't put kids in snake pits because we've had bad kings. This is the math that Isaiah is doing here. This is his formula that he's working with. Because if you look at the rest of the chapter, if we go back up to the earlier scriptures in chapter 11, you can see what Isaiah is really talking about. He's not talking about animals you know, living at peace together. He's talking about something else that is tied to this righteous king. Right? So he's describing what we need in order to get the lions and the lambs to, to lay down together. Right? So in order to get that result, in order for predators and prey to live at peace, we need a king who will, quoting Isaiah, delight in the fear of the Lord. We need a king who will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, nor will he decide what he hears with his ears. But he will, with righteousness, judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, when you hear the word judge, we think in terms of like a courtroom setting and a judge, you know, knocking down a verdict. But judge really means discern. It means to make a decision on behalf of. It means to, to weigh things out and come up with an equation that balances out. Right? So when you, when you read the word judge in the Bible, don't think of, you know, courtroom judge, Judge Judy, um, think of somebody that comes into a situation that will make the right decision on behalf of those who've been wronged. So he will judge not by what he sees with his eyes or hears what his ears. He's going to judge based off of something else. He's going to establish justice based off of something other than what he is wrapped up in, in right around him, his immediate circumstance. The Bible says he will judge, he will administer justice with righteousness. And that will give decisions for the poor of the earth. It says he'll strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. So through his words, through his mouth, he will correct. The rod is a tool that's used to guide. Um, it's not punishment, it's not beating, it's, it's a shaping, it's a guiding tool. With the rod, you will point the people in the right direction. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Evil will be overcome by his pronouncements about truth, what he judges. This righteous king will administer justice for the meek and the poor, says Isaiah. Those who have been exploited and oppressed, those who are victims of, of violence and conflict, those who have been uh, abused by those in power, this righteous king will come and decide in their favor and put them back on solid standing. And so when, when Isaiah is talking about predators and prey, he's, he's using the example of lions and sheep and wolves and lambs and all of that. But what he's really talking about is predators as in powerful people and prey those who have been victims of that. And you can know that that's what he's talking about because the king that's going to fix this is one that protects the, the prey. right? Because the king... It's going to come in and, and allow the predators and prey to coexist. Right? The king, this righteous king, is going to come and allow this situation to happen where there's peace between these two groups that have been at odds. 
in the world. And so what Isaiah is really getting at is this idea that the presenting problems in the world, the things that we see, the things that we would say are wrong with the world, are actually symptoms of an unrighteous ruler. That's what he's saying. He's saying the, the lion eats the lamb, the, the, the kids get bit by snakes because we've lacked a righteous ruler. Predators hurt prey because we haven't had a righteous ruler. So the problem is we look around the world, as Isaiah said, that he won't judge by what he sees, but by righteousness. So when we look around the world and say, oh, the problem is suffering, the problem is hunger, the problem is poverty, Isaiah would say, the problem is deeper than that. Those are symptoms of a bigger issue, right? Um, and so because those are symptoms of a bigger issue, says Isaiah, the solution is a different solution, okay? These are problems that can be fixed by having a righteous and godly king on the throne. Are you tracking with the Isaiah math here? He's not saying the problem is that there's somebody hungry down on the street corner. He's saying because we've had unrighteous kings, it's produced an environment in which somebody's hungry down on the street corner. And so the solution isn't to give them a sandwich. That will fix a problem. But the solution to the bigger problem is a righteous king on the throne. You're tracking with me so far? Because this is, this is what's really important about this, this, this question we're asking. What are we waiting for? Because if I'm hungry, I might be, feel like I'm waiting for a sandwich. But Isaiah says you're waiting for a king. They can be fixed. These presenting problems can be fixed by having a righteous and godly king on the throne. So, for example, what was the problem in Egypt before the Exodus? You know your Old Testament history. What was the problem in Egypt before, before the Exodus? Were the Hebrews not good enough to do the brick-making job? Were they just poor workers? Well, the problem was an unrighteous pharaoh, a ruler that didn't care about the people in his kingdom. Right? You have an unholy, an unrighteous, an ungodly leader. That's the problem. What was the problem that led to Israel splitting into two kingdoms? Israel to the north, Judah to the south. Was the problem that people just couldn't get along? No, the problem was that after um, David's death... There was turmoil, and King Solomon and Rehoboam exploited the people with heavy taxes. If you read the, the scriptures, you see that they despised the rulers because of the burden that they put on their own people. The Bible talks about famines and wars and diseases and poverty, and the Bible attributes all of this to kings who didn't care for their people, who failed to lead their people in proper worship of God. All of these things are attributed to unrighteous, unholy kings. Why was Israel and Judah conquered and exiled? They were defeated by the Assyrians and Babylonian armies. Why? Was it because they had a bad army? They didn't know how to fight wars? The Bible says they were conquered. They were defeated because their kings were unfaithful to God. They established idols to worship, and they refused to care for their people. That's what the Bible says exile was a result of. Um, just for a moment, listen to this passage from Ezekiel chapter 34, Ezekiel being one of the prophetic texts in the Old Testament. Just listen to this. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel. Shepherds, kings, rulers. right? Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only took care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? 
You eat the curds, you close yourselves with the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or gone searching for the lost. You have not ruled them or you have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. God says, my sheep wandered all over the mountains on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth. And no one searched or looked for them. That's Ezekiel's speaking the word of God to the rulers of Israel and of Judah. You've been given a position to be shepherd over the flock and you have taken advantage of it and not cared for them. And so we're back to this foundation that Isaiah starts with. Worldly kings create worldly problems. Worldly leaders using worldly power cannot bring about godly results. The kingdom of God is not going to be built using means of the kingdom of this world. Worldly kings create worldly problems. They cannot bring about godly results because they cannot see things the way that God sees them. This is what's so great about this passage in chapter 11. He says, this righteous king that will come will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or what he hears with his ears. There's some other criteria that he's going to use to judge and to administer justice. But these kings... They can't see that way. They're trapped in their immediate situation. They can only see the world as it is right in front of them. They don't see the way that God sees. They're blind to bigger realities. They think that the world will be shaped by those with the most power, the most force, the most wealth, and the most status. Right? And that's why they make these deals and compromises and worship foreign gods. Because they're, they're navigating, they're trying to create their kingdom. They're so wrapped up in the way that the current broken ways of the world exist that they cannot fathom, they can't imagine a world that functioned differently. They can't imagine a world where power, where might didn't make right. It doesn't mean that some good didn't come from those leaders, and it doesn't mean that some good can't come from our leaders today, but we shouldn't put our hope in them. Advent which feels like a, a very spiritual Christmas time, at its root is very political in nature. I'm not going to preach politics. It's not my thing, and I'm not going to tell you what to think or who to vote for or any of that stuff. But I will say this. As we read through Isaiah, he's reminding us that we shouldn't put our hope in worldly rulers. No person, political party, or organization fully represents the kingdom of God. No person, political party, organization fully represents the rule of Jesus. Only Jesus is the righteous king. And so when we look out in the world around us and we see people aligning with the ways of Jesus, aligning with the teachings of Jesus, whether it be a person, a party, an organization, and say, this is what God would have for our world, we can celebrate it. We can support that area and say, oh, God is at work there, let me get on board with that. His kingdom is already here and at work, and when we see it, we should celebrate it and participate in it. But on the other side, we should reject and rebuke the areas that are contrary to the ways of Jesus. If you cannot condemn the sin of your team, that's a good sign that your allegiance to that team is greater than your allegiance to Jesus. 
And what that looks like in the church sometimes is churches protecting abusive pastors and leaders. There's been this heartbreaking story that came out this year that a certain denomination in the U.S. has had a list of 700 pastors that have abused children. And instead of addressing it, they put them on a name, shuffled the pastors to other churches, and didn't address it. Because, and the rationale goes, these are our leaders, these are the ones that people come and they trust, and if we hold them accountable for these terrible behaviors, it's going to hurt the church. And so, there's been people protecting abusers because they were protecting the organization. They were defending and ignoring sin and other harmful behaviors of their favorite people. That's what it looks like. And so Christians end up defending or ignoring sinful and harmful behaviors of their favorite fill-in-the-blank. Celebrity, athlete, social media, influencer, politician, TV personality, whatever. But remember, no person, party, or organization, or anything other than Jesus fully embodies the kingdom of God. And so when we see God at work, we can say, yes, God is working through that person, doing this thing, through that party, through that organization, doing the thing. But where they are not, our allegiance is to Jesus. The Bible tells us, and we sing about it, and we talk about it this time of year, that Jesus is king of kings. And what that means isn't that he's just the most kingliest. That was the thing. It means he is the ruler of all the rulers. Right? That the people in power, the people in places that govern us, that lead us, that we follow, those that we as a society have given authority to, those people are accountable to Jesus. And so where they follow and live into the kingdom of Jesus, we can celebrate it. But where they don't, we can't ignore it. Or as Isaiah 5, we turn back just a few chapters, Isaiah 5 says, don't call good what God calls evil. It's easy to get twisted up when our allegiance is in the wrong group, to the wrong king. So what should we do? Do we look around the world and say, well, Jesus is at work in places, but he's not like on a throne ruling here. There's some good happening there's some people with power and authority that are up to good things. They're looking out for the people that God would say, yes, this is what I want my people to do. But then there's other places where sin and brokenness and conflict and greed rule and shape the day. So what should we do as people that live in that tension? In, in scholarship, they, they talk about the kingdom that is already here, but not yet fully here. So what should we do in this time of waiting? Well, that's the answer. We wait faithfully for the one and only righteous king. Right? We put our hope in the one and only righteous king. We follow the commands, the way, the teaching of Jesus, even when there are other options that seem better from a worldly perspective. We do not let go of what Jesus has called us to be and to do for pragmatic or expedient results. For we should not lose hope, and Isaiah is telling us, do not lose hope in God's Messiah or the kingdom that he brings. Remember, Isaiah is writing this about the righteous king, the holy king that we should be waiting for, the one that is to come. He's writing not after the exile, but before. He's saying the things are going to get worse, 
There's going to be a war. <laughs> They're going to come and invade. And we could come up with our own solutions. Or we can wait for the righteous king that's going to come and fix this. And so he says, do not lose hope in God's Messiah, which means anointed one, holy one, the sent one. Or do not lose hope the kingdom that he brings. So what does it look like to lose hope in God's Messiah or the coming kingdom of, of God? We talk a lot in, in Christian culture today about, about losing faith, about deconstruction, about walking away from faith, about being post-Christian, all of these things. There's kind of a crisis in church leadership of people that are just not coming to church anymore, and we don't know what to do about it. What does it look like when people lose hope in God's Messiah or the coming kingdom of God? Well, at first it looks like despair, pessimism, or apathy. People get overwhelmed by the world around them. It's too big, it's too hard, it's too broken. Um, nothing's going to come out of this. It's not, it, there's no coming back from this. It's over, it's done with. Or apathy, this is just the way that it is. If you're suffering, I'm sorry that that's you, but it's not me. And we just get to the point where we just, a lack of hope looks like a lack of care, empathy, and concern for the world around us. So that's one thing that shows up when we lose hope in God's Messiah. Another thing that could show up is, is this attitude that I or we have got to do something about this. I mean, the Bible tells us Jesus is coming, and when he comes, everything's going to be set right. But in the meantime... Somebody's got to do something, and that's probably me or us. Right? And so we lose patience. We lose that sense of trust that God is at work. And we think we've got to take it into our own hands. And what usually results from that, when we lose patience, when we lose trust, when we lose hope that God is coming, and we start saying, I've got to do something about this, is we have a tendency to abandon the ways of God because we think they're not effective enough. They don't move quick enough. They don't actually produce the results. So I'm not trying to get too nerdy with, with you all today, but there's this thing in scholarship, biblical scholarship called two kingdoms theory, and you've probably never heard of this, but it'll sound familiar when I describe it. Two kingdoms theory is the idea that Jesus is the king of my soul and of my heart, and I'm gonna do what he says when it comes to spiritual things, but when I'm out in the world, engaging in the workplace or in the political realm or in my neighborhood or in my community, the problems there need a different solution. Jesus fixes the sin problem, the spiritual problem, but we need a different set of rules for the world. And so we create two kingdoms. That's where the name comes from, two kingdoms theory. Jesus rules my heart, my soul, but I need a different king to rule the world here and now. You have different rule books depending on the situation. And what happens if we embrace this kingdom, this two kingdoms theory, this idea that there's different rules for spiritual things and physical things, if we go down that road, what happens is our heroes here and now don't look like Jesus. Our teachers, the people that we follow, don't sound like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus solves a different problem. <laughs> he solves the heart problem, the sin problem, but this problem over here needs a different type of king. And so that's what happens. Uh, another thing that, that happens when we embrace this two kingdoms theory or abandon 
uh, hope in the coming Messiah is we get this sense of urgency. It kicks in because I'm afraid, I'm worried, and, and I don't think Jesus has this under control. I don't think God's plan is really unfolding the way that he wants it to, and so I lose patience. I lose endurance. I lose that sense of perseverance that the early church had. Paul, when he wrote, I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me, wasn't talking about kicking the winning goal in soccer. He was talking about uh, surviving, living, enduring in a world that doesn't embrace him. Not living in comfort and peace and, and living in a world of persecution. He was enduring. He was persevering. He was talking about living a life that on the surface, with what you see with your eyes and hear with your ears, isn't what you think it should be. And so when we have this sense of urgency or we, we have this lack of patience or endurance or lack of hope that God is doing something or God will do something, we get this sense of urgency. I have to do something. I have to do it now. And so what a result is we end up attacking others, enemies, instead of loving our enemies. The definition of love isn't some warm feeling that we have for people. It's, and I, this is a, a, a paraphrase of a Dallas Willard, who's one of my favorite authors. And, um, he says, love is actively desiring the well-being of the other. It's participating in the making other people's lives better. Desiring the well-being of the other. And so, when we look at our enemies, those others, do we truly desire for them to experience goodness? We end up trying to defeat our enemies instead of love them the way that Jesus commands us to. Another thing that shows up when we, we lose hope, when we start to despair, or we don't trust in this coming Messiah, is we, we become blind to the work that God is doing in our lives right here and now. Right? When, when we don't think that God is at work and we don't think that God is coming and there's no, this kingdom is going to come, and we don't think that if we don't trust that God's got it all in his hands and he's not controlling the fate of history, when we, when we think that we've got to do it, we quit looking and listening for God. We quit expecting to see God in the everyday, ordinary situations. Because we think God, for whatever reason, has abandoned us or isn't doing a good enough job or for whatever reason. And we, we'd be hesitant to say that openly, but this is the behaviors that come out of that attitude. We look around the world and we don't expect to see Jesus anywhere. An another symptom of this, another presenting problem is, is what could be called hypocrisy. What we say we believe doesn't align with our behaviors. We say Jesus has this, he's king of everything, God is in control, and then we go out in the world and say, so somebody's got to put this mess together, I better get to work. Or we say Jesus uh, heals and saves everything. There's this new creation that's coming. We, we, we can confess the information we've been taught about Christianity, but when it comes down to how we live our lives, our behavior tells a different story. We have information about God, but our values are shaped by other rulers, other kings. Another thing that can happen is that the gospel quits being good news. If you look around the world and say, oh, there's, all these things are wrong, how happy would you be if Jesus showed up in these situations? Because that's the good news of the gospel, is that in these areas where things are broken, Jesus is showing up. 
When we have conflicts with people, Jesus is going to show up and teach us how to love them. When there's needs, Jesus is going to teach us and show up how to be generous. <laughs> when there's, when there's uh, you know, problems between, he's going to show up and teach us how to forgive one another. And so when we get caught up in despair, losing hope, not trusting that God is at work, that he's the one that's going to send this righteous king to rule everything and the world will be as he wants it to be. When we lose that hope, we have a tendency to follow a different king. King Jesus isn't going to solve these problems. And in some extreme cases, we don't even want Jesus to be king. He's too forgiving. I could never forgive that person. He's too loving. Can you, can you believe God wants me to care about that person after what they did? He's too meek. We need a warrior, not a shepherd, not a lamb. Too peaceful. Like the way to defeat our enemies is just to knock them off the face of the earth. He's too patient. He says to forgive so many times, but I'm just ready to get this over and done with. Jesus is too generous. He says, just give everything you have. If your neighbor has need, give. They're going to bleed me dry. He's too faithful. Jesus isn't breaking covenant even when these people did those things. He still loves them. And he's too humble. He needs somebody that will stand in front and everybody will be afraid of or know that they're in charge. Jesus goes to a cross. And so we can get caught up in the despair and the good news that Jesus is here can quit being good news because we want a different king to rescue us. Hope is not a good feeling. It's not optimism. It's not a sense of, well, everything's going to work out. I don't know how. Some way it's God's going to work it all out. No, hope is not wishful thinking and it's not even a goal. The truth that I want us to walk away with, and we've got a, a slide, if, if Evie's still hanging out back there, I can't see over the TV. Um, hope is a commitment to King Jesus. I'll say that again, hope is a commitment to King Jesus. It's a commitment to his way, his character, his teaching, his plan, his commands, even when you can't see him. Right? We have a king, he's not here with us today, but we're going to live in such a way that when he comes back, He's going to say, oh, you did everything exactly how I expected you to. You must have known I was coming back. Hope is a commitment to a king that isn't here yet. So why do we need to wait faithfully for this one and righteous king? Why, why this big drawn out thing? Why am I stepping on toes and making things really uncomfortable and awkward this morning? Why do we need to know how important it is to wait faithfully for this one and only king? Well, only one king in one kingdom leads to life. Only one king in one king kingdom leads to life without end. And so I don't want you to walk out the door going, well, any king will do. I want you to know that you know that only one king will lead to the life that God has for you. Following other kings leads us on a quest for worldly power and control. We start entering into that dynamic. Are you a predator or are you prey? Where are you in the situation? Are you a wolf, a sheep, a lion, or a calf? But under King Jesus, it doesn't matter. 
regardless of what you are in that situation, if you have all the power in the world or if you're the meekest, most mild person in the whole world, it doesn't matter. There won't be any suffering or loss. The truth is that even being the best in worldly kingdoms does damage to you. We are so caught up in trying to move up and and pursue worldly kingdoms and worldly status. But the Bible says, what good is it to gain the whole world and to lose your soul? Only one king and only one kingdom leads to the life that we're seeking. The only way to end up experiencing that abundant life, God's abundant life, the, the peace that God has for you is to put your hope in King Jesus and him alone. Jesus is the only one who can get us where we truly long to be. Jesus is the only one who can say, it doesn't matter if you are the fiercest lion or the the meekest of the littlest lambs, you will be safe and cared for by the good shepherd. Jesus is the only king who can lead us in righteousness according to God, not to the world. Jesus is the only one who can administer justice and judgment according to God's nature and God's character. So this Advent season, we're asking the question, what are we waiting for? Well, what are we waiting for? We're waiting for this true king to come and set things right. We're waiting for Jesus to show up, take the throne, and to set things right. But hope is not a passive waiting. We are called to hope. It is part of our allegiance to King Jesus. Again, hope is a commitment to him. It's not a passive waiting. Only a righteous king with perception beyond present circumstances can heal and save the world. Only a king that doesn't play these worldly games and plays uh, you know, power struggles and all these things with, on, the, on the worldly terms and with worldly kingdoms. Only a king that's outside of that, that's above that, can understand what God wants for this world and can lead us in that salvation. And so what I want for you this this year as we go through this Advent and then ultimately the Christmas season, don't settle for shortcuts or cheap substitutions. Right? As as I go shopping with my kids, sometimes they don't have enough enough money to get what they want, so they want the cheap knockoff version of it, right? Man, that is not what you want. It's going to break in five minutes or it doesn't do what you think it does. You're going to spend your money. You're going to invest your time only to be disappointed and let down in the end. And that's what Isaiah is saying about worldly kings. Only the one that comes from God. Only the one that is called Emmanuel. Only the one that leads lions and lambs to lay down together is the one that that you should follow. Don't settle for shortcuts or cheap substitutions. And so the invitation is to wait faithfully for the one and only righteous king. Wait faithfully and patiently for King Jesus.